Let us pray. A most eternal and everlasting Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, we thank you, we praise you for your faithful Father. We're grateful that uh, you made it possible for us to assemble this evening and you directed your storm in such a way that it did not affect us in any form that is adverse to us. For this we're grateful. This evening we have gathered recognizing that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's a request that the Holy Spirit will open our minds and enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this evening. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 14 verses 23 through 25 it reads, The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Now recall that the message of this section that we are considering is this. The church of Christ should not be afraid of the activities of her enemies because God will fight for her in such a way that her enemies may recognize it. Now so we indicated there are two propositions that we will consider that should enable us to expand on this message. The first proposition we studied in our last study is that the enemy of the church may come after her with all their might, but God will act on her behalf. Now there are two parts to that proposition. The first part is that the enemy of the church may come after her with all their might. Now this first part though is based on the first sentence of verse 23 when it says the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. So that's the military mention of the Egyptians coming after the Israelites. So we consider this verse in our last study. So we continue with the second part of the proposition. The second part of this first proposition is that God will act on behalf of the church under the attack of the enemy. The second part of the first proposition is based on the fact God acted on behalf of Israel in the passage that we are considering as given in Exodus chapter 14 verse 24. When it says, During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. Now we are given the approximate time in which God acted on behalf of Israel in this first uh, phrase of Exodus 14:24, when he said, During the last watch of the night, 
Now literally, the Hebrew reads, it was in the night watch of the morning. That's how the Hebrew reads. It was in the night watch of the morning. Now the expression, last watch of, uh, watch of the night, of the NIV really, is translated from a, a Hebrew word that means watch of the night or night watch or watch as a division of time. Now in Israel, during the Old Testament times, the night was divided into three periods during which a watchman will be responsible to remain awake. The first period began approximately after sunset and went to about what we call about 10 o'clock, uh, 10 p.m. So this first period is really described as the beginning of the night watch or watches in Lamentations chapter 2 verse 19. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 19 reads Arise cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin that is the first watch as the watches of the night begin pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who fed from hunger at the head of every street. Now the second watch is from about 10 p.m. to about 2 a.m. And that is described in the scripture as a middle watch. The middle watch. As we find in Judges chapter 7 verse 19. Judges chapter 7 verse 19 Judges chapter 7 verse 19 reads Gideon and a hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch the middle watch just uh, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. So the third watch goes in from about 2 a.m. to sunrise. Now it is described as the last watch of Exodus 14 verse 24 that we're studying. However, during the New Testament times, the Jews adopted the Roman system of night watch that was divided into four. It's for this reason that we read of the fourth watch in Mark chapter 6 verse 48. Mark chapter 6 verse 48. It reads, Mark chapter 6 verse 48, reads, He saw the disciples straining at the earth, because the wind was against them. 
about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Now see, so when somebody reads this and reads Old Testament, and, and I just said, there are only three watches. And somebody said, what about this fourth watch? If you remember, I say, during the New Testament time, they adopted, the Jews adopted the Roman system of watch. Now since Moses did not live in, in the New Testament time, he certainly thought in terms of the three watches that are identified in the Old Testament. Now that aside, we do not have an exact time when God acted on behalf of his people. All we know is that it is during the last watch of the night. That is anywhere from 2 a.m. to Christmas sunrise. In any case, we are introduced to the location from which the Lord acted on behalf of his people. In the sentence of Exodus 14.24 that we are studying, that reads, The Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army. So the location from where the Lord acted is given in that phrase, the pillar of fire and cloud. Now this is in keeping with the location of the Lord who has been guiding Israel since their departure from Egypt as conveyed in Exodus chapter 13 verses 21 and 22. Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. It reads, Exodus 13, reads, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they, they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So, in the first description of the location of the Lord, the pillar of cloud is mentioned first. But, in the phrase of Exodus chapter 14 verse 24, the pillar of fire is mentioned first. Now, although uh, some, such as the New American Bible, see the two as forming a single concept, so that the Hebrew phrase then is translated something like a column of fiery, of fiery cloud. But it seems though that there's a reason for reversing the order of the phrase from how it was previously uh, used. That is, measuring the pillar of cloud before the pillar of fire. It is probably because the event of dividing the sea took place at night when the Lord guided Israel through the pillar of fire. So it, it was appropriate to mention then the pillar of fire first and then to link it to the pillar of cloud. For after all, the Lord is represented as being in either location, 
depending on the time of the day. Now that aside, it was from this location of pillar of uh, fire and cloud that the Lord directed his attention on the Egyptians. In that sentence when he said the, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian army. See the expression look down is translated from a Hebrew word that his basic idea is to look down from a height. Thus, Abraham's three heavenly visitors were said to have looked down from a height towards Sodom and Gomorrah as we read in Genesis chapter 18 verse 16. Genesis chapter 18 verse 16. It reads, When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Now Abimelech is said to observe Isaac caressing his wife, Rebecca, from a window of a house that was certainly at a higher elevation from where Isaac and Rebecca were, as described in Genesis chapter 26, verse 8. Genesis chapter 26, verse 8. It is when Isaac had been there a long time. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. Now, the word is used to indicate that God looks down on humans to see if there are those who seek. Him as we read in Psalm 14, verse 2. Psalms 14, verse 2. Now hold on to Psalms. Psalms chapter 14, verse 2. It is the Lord looks down from heaven. On the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Now the Lord also looks down from heaven to notice the suffering of his people and to set them free as we read in Psalm 102 verses 19 and 20. Psalm 102 verses 19 and 20. Psalms 102, verses 19 and 20. It is, The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release, them, and release those condemned to death. 
Now in our passage of Exodus chapter 14 verse 24, the word means to look down, that is to direct one's gaze downwards. Hence, the Lord in a sense sized the Egyptian army before destroying them. He sized them. Now, be that as it may, the first action then of God after sizing the Egyptian army, so to say, was to cause confusion among them as indicated in the clause of Exodus chapter 14 verse 24 we are studying. Because it reads, and threw it into confusion. And threw it into confusion. Now the expression threw into confusion is translated from uh, a Hebrew word that may mean to bring into motion and confusion. Thus the word is used with the meaning to drive, that is, to set in motion, as it is used to describe the grain threshing process in Isaiah 28 verse 28 as involved in producing grain for bread. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 28 Isaiah 28 verse 28 it is grain must be ground to make bread. So one does not go on threshing it forever. Though he drives, that's a Hebrew word here, it's drives. Though he drives the wheels of his threshing cart over it, his horses do not grind it. Now the word means to route, to route, as of, as of the Lord routing the enemies of Israel, as we read, for example, in Judges chapter 4, verse 15. Judges chapter 4 verse 15 it reads at Barak's advance the Lord routed that's a Hebrew word yes it was routed the Lord routed uh, Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Now the war may mean to throw into confusion or to throw into panic. As we read in Joshua chapter 10 verse 10. Joshua Chapter 10, verse 10. Joshua chapter 10, verse 10 reads, The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth, Aharon, and caught them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. So here the word 
It has the meaning to into confusion. Now the word also may mean to cause trouble. Just to cause trouble. As it is used to describe what God does to a nation. As stated in Second Chronicles chapter five, I mean chapter fifteen, verse six. Second Chronicles Second Chronicles chapter fifteen verse six. It is one nation was being crushed by another and one city by another because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. I know sometimes we look at things and we don't really uh, remember these things. You know, you see one nation go after another nation. Uh, all we see is one side of it. We don't know what God is doing. That is a reason that God is troubling the nations for a reason. Whether we know it or not, but that's just what it is. Anyway, in our passage of Exodus, chapter 14, verse 24, the word is used with the meaning of to throw into confusion. That is, to cause to be in a state of disorder or panic. And when God brings confusion or panic on the military of Israel's enemy that guarantees the defeat of the enemy as in the defeat of the Philistines recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 10. 1 Samuel First Samuel Chapter 7, verse 10. For Samuel, chapter 7, verse 10. It is, while Samuel was sacrificing the bond offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. So here, God brought some confusion so that the enemy would be defeated. Doesn't when the Lord acted in such a way as to bring confusion on the Egyptian army that assured that they will be destroyed. So anyway, the first action then of the Lord towards the Egyptian army was to cause confusion or panic among them, although how he did it was not explicitly given in verse 24. But the description given in verse 25 hints at how the Lord carried out his first action of causing panic among the Egyptian soldiers. We're going to see that at the proper time. Now the second action of the Lord then towards the Egyptians was 
disabling their military equipment, so to say. It is this disabling of their military equipment that is given in the sentence of Exodus 14 verse 25 when he say, He made the wheels of their chariots come off. He made the wheels of their chariots come off. Now there is a problem regarding the translation of the Hebrew of the sentence. As may be noted though by comparing some English versions. Now the expression made come off of the NIV is translated jammed in the new English translation. Jammed. Now that of course following the Septuagint and the Syriac uh, text that suggests that the Hebrew word is actually derived from a root that means to bind. To bind. And of course the English standard version translated the Hebrew word using clogged. Clogged. Now the difference in the translation of a Hebrew word that may mean uh, to turn aside. That's what one is translated from. See when you know you clog your drain and all that. So that's where they say you know like you clogged a drain or something. But anyway, so when the NIV uh, uses this expression "made come off," that is really translated from a Hebrew word. That may mean to turn aside. However, in the Hebrew form that the word is used in our passage, it may mean to take off, to take off, as it is used of Pharaoh taking off his signet ring to put it on Joseph's ring, uh, finger, as we read. In Genesis chapter 42, I mean 41 verse 42. Genesis chapter 41 verse 42. It is then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. So he took it off from his finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now the Hebrew word may mean to remove them or to take away. As it is used to describe the action Israel had to take before he could defeat his enemy, which is the removal of the consecrated item that belongs to the Lord that Achan took for his own personal use. As we read in Joshua chapter 7 verse 13. Joshua Chapter 7, verse 13. 
Joshua chapter 7 verse 13 reads, Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In other words, everything devoted to the Lord should belong to him. But Achan took that and that caused the whole Israel army to be defeated. That's why you just, especially in the community of belief, one person, one believer can cause a lot of havoc for the rest of believers in that local congregation. But so here, because of what he did, Israel was being defeated and God said, there's no way you're going to win until you remove that. And they did. Now the sense though of the Hebrew word in Exodus 14 verse 25 is to cause to turn away. To cause to turn away. Or to cause to turn aside. Now although some take the Hebrew word to mean that the wheels were stuck in the sand of the, sea, of the seabed. Or that the wheels came off completely. But it is probably the case that the Lord somehow distorted the shape of the wheels so that it was not easy for the cats to move. See, a wheel that is circular, when uh, distorted, will still move but with considerable difficulty. Now, regardless of how the word is translated though, the fact is that God acted on the wheels of the chariots of the Egyptian army to cause some problem for them regarding their pursuit of the Israelites. As, like I said, some people think the wheel came off. But I believe that he distorted God somehow distorted it. Now the result of God's action on the wheels of the Egyptian uh, chariot is such that the horses had problem pulling the cats that carried the soldiers and their weapons. See, one of the reasons I, I give that interpretation is if the wheels came off, that's no big deal for, the, for a horse to just keep going. Or if he's stuck, of course, if he's stuck in mud, that will also cause problems. But if, if he's able to move with distorted wheel, then the horses will have a hard time uh, uh, moving. So, in this case, it is this problem then, that is given in the clause of Exodus 14 verse 25, when it says, so that they had difficulty driving. They had difficulty driving. Now this clause indicates that the Egyptians had difficulty driving their chariots. Now the situation, as we stated previously, was probably because the wheels of the chariots were this, uh, of these cats were distorted, so that the horses that pulled the cats had great difficulty doing so. Of course, it's also possible that the wheels got stuck on the sand of the seabed or 
mud. Which will indicate something that once Israel passed through on a dry land, as soon as they passed through, the Lord made the whole thing wet. That's the way it would stick because the Israelites went through, they didn't stick. I mean, their fruit or anything. So that could be what happened also. Anyway, now we can imagine though that when the horses were unable to move the cats, they could be jumping up and making noises that would have created confusion or panic among the Egyptians. Can you imagine a lot of horses jumping up and down and because they couldn't move easily. And those of you who ride horses, you know what will happen if, they, if a horse is spoofed, as they say, and he jumps up. And that's what was going on here. Thus, we may speculate that it is the inability of the horses to move easily that was used by God to bring confusion and panic on the part of the Egyptian soldiers. In effect, once their military machine or equipment malfunctioned, panic set in among them. In other words, you can imagine uh, what the panic a soldier feels when in the battlefield and the weapon jams. I, I mean, it's a big panic because you now know you're defenseless. And those who have been in the war front, like I have, you, you, you know that you just be almost suicidal. Unless you depend on your training to use your hand to kill, but then uh, you can't do that if somebody's coming after you with a, uh, a gun. You can't do that. So this may be the kind of thing. All the equipment malfunctions. So everyone is, is panicking. How are we going to do this? Again, regardless of how the Lord disabled their military equipment, the result was panic on the side of the Egyptian soldiers. Now be that as he made them, God's action on the Egyptian army and their chariots caused them to respond in a way that implies they wanted to call off their pursuit of the Israelites. Thus, their response is then given in the clause of Exodus 14.25 where starting, where it says, where it reads, And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. Now the soldier wanted to hurry and get away from their pursuit of the Israelites. That is, they wanted to flee from the Israelites. They have seen, as they say, the handwriting on the wall. Now you see though, the expression get away is translated from a Hebrew word that conveys the sense of flight from mortal physical danger or from a spiritual danger. Thus, the word is used with the meaning to run, to run. In Joseph's effort to flee from the temptation to sexual sin, by Potiphar's wife, as recorded in Genesis chapter 39, verse 12. Genesis Genesis 
chapter 39 verse 12 Genesis chapter 39 verse 12 reads She caught him by his cloak and said Come to bed with me But he left his cloak in her hand And ran out of the house Here the Hebrew word Nus is translated Run out Now the word also may mean to escape To escape When physical danger is involved as in the action of Rehoboam, when he faced the danger of being killed by the rebellion Israelites, as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 18. 1 Kings First Kings chapter 12 Verse 18. It is King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So a Hebrew word here. Escape. Now the word also may mean to flee, flee, especially of soldiers facing defeat and death from their enemy, as the word is used to describe the soldiers of the Amorites running away from the Israelite army, as stated in Joshua chapter 10, verse 11. Joshua Joshua chapter 10 verse 11 It reads And they fled That's a Hebrew word And they fled Before Israel On the road down from Beth Huron to Azekah, the Lord hauled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from hailstones than were killed by the source of the Israelites. In our passage of Exodus 14 verse 25, the sense of the Hebrew word is to flee, that is to run or move away quickly so as to escape. Hence, the Egyptian soldiers said to each other that they should flee from the Israelites. Of course, as reported later, their desire to flee was not to be because the Lord had already determined to destroy them. So I'm saying that although they wanted to flee, uh, from the Israelites, that was too late because they were already in a position of no return. In other words, they have passed a point where it is possible to escape. 
they maybe they may be it is is possible the situation will have been the Lord just let him come almost very close to the age but not quite still a distance where the Israelites already passed so they still had at that time they were ways past the middle of the uh, Red Sea so it just going back is difficult going forward is difficult of course if they, they realize if we go forward we get stuck there too so how are we going to come back so the other thing is the instinct is to run back but that was too late now so this brings us to the uh, our second proposition that we deal with our message the second proposition of the message that we are considering is that the enemies of the church may be cognizant of God fighting for her as derived in from the last clause of Exodus chapter 14 verse 25 that we're starting because it's erased you see I mean if you look at what we have in that verse 25 you of course see that the desire of the Egyptian soldiers to flee from the Israelites is the cause of what they had observed that caused them to come to the conclusion that God of the Israelites is for them but against the Egyptians. It is this conclusion that is then given that in the last clause of Exodus 14.25 that reads, The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Now interestingly, the Egyptian soldiers recognize the supreme God of the Hebrew people who is in a unique relationship with them. Now this is because they use the word Lord, Lord, to describe the God of the Hebrew people. See the word Lord is translated from a Hebrew word that we often translate really Yahweh, Yahweh. As the name of God of Israel uh, that he gave to Israelite through Moses for identifying him. In other words, just as you have your name, and someone call you by your name. If you want to call the Lord by his name, his name is not Lord. His name is Yahweh. That's his personal name. I know I know we don't use this, but really we should. That's his personal name. It's a different thing if you're talking about God in general, but if you want to talk, call about this particular uh, God, which in this case is the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just Yahweh. That's how he identified himself in the Old Testament. Anyway, so God's word, uh, or this Yahweh, that Israel understood uh, as their God, and the Egyptians recognized that this Israel's God, Yahweh, is the God of creation. They realize that. Now, God's word to Moses about the Egyptian recognizing that he is Yahweh has then been fulfilled. Once they did, once they recognized that he is Yahweh. And so, what he promised Moses was fulfilled. And I'm referring to, since you're still in Exodus 14, look at verse 4. Look at what he's told him in verse 4. Verse 4 say, reads, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself, 
through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Although our English version say Lord with you know all cats, you know, I am Yahweh, that's my name. My name Yahweh. So that's what I am Yahweh. So the Israelites did this. Anyway, the Egyptian soldiers acknowledged that Moses, uh, at least what Moses had earlier conveyed to the Israelites, when they were, when they were hemmed in by the pursuing army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. Recall Moses calmed their fear by telling them that God will fight for them as we read Exodus 14, look at verse 14. Exodus 14 verse 14 reads, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now this was not the only time Moses encouraged Israel with a promise that God will fight for them when they were poised to enter Canaan and during Moses' farewell speech to them, he encouraged them with the same promise that God will fight for them as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 30. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 30. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 30 reads, The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes. So this promise of God fighting for Israel was fulfilled several times in the history of Israel. Now the conquest of Canaan, by the Israelites was only possible because the Lord fought for them against their enemies while really they merely cleaned up after they lost victory in the form of killing their enemies. In other words, the Lord did all the killing, mobilized or immobilized the enemy, so all they just went to what would come up of the battlefield. Consequently, when Joshua gave his farewell address to Israel, he reminded them that the Lord fought their battles for them. As we read in Joshua chapter 23, verse 3. Joshua Joshua chapter 23, Verse 3. It reads, You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Now the faithful king of Judah, King Jehoshaphat, was certainly a recipient of this promise of God fighting 
for Israel, as testified in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. Second Chronicles chapter 20 verses 29 through 30. It is the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they had how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. Now it is this truth that God fights for Israel that Nehemiah used to encourage his fellow citizens not to be discouraged as they were uh, rebuilding the, te- uh, the walls of Jerusalem in the face of hostility of their neighbors, as we read in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 20. Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 20. It is, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So the point is that the Lord has put in the mouths of the Egyptian soldiers the truth they confessed. That the God of Israel is fighting for them. So they were right. That Israel's God, Yahweh, was fighting for them against the Egyptians. Their confession, though, should remind you as a believer that whenever or whatever battle you have or you face, that the Lord will fight for you. Many times we do not know when to just be still. And let God fight for us. And we try to fight for ourselves and we mess it up. You should face whatever you have, whatever you do, uh, face that's uh, troubling to you. Face it with a type of faith David exhibited when he was about to go against Goliath, as recorded in 4 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47. First Samuel chapter 17 verse 47. It is all those gathered here we know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. He was a confidence, knowing that the Lord is the one who fights Israel's battle. 
So you should claim them the same encouragement given to uh, Judah and King Jehoshaphat that the battle is the Lord's. Only that he and his troop though should march out to the battlefield in faith to claim their victory. As recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 20 verses 15 and 17. Second Chronicles Second Chronicles chapter twenty verses fifteen through seventeen. It reads He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of these, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. So I'm saying to you, based on all this, face your problem with faith that God is for you. As the Holy Spirit reminds us, through the rhetorical question of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 31. Romans chapter 8 verse 31. Romans 8 verse 31 reads, What then Shall we say in response to this, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So anyway, because God acted on behalf of the Israelites, that caused the Egyptian soldiers to admit that the God of Israel fought for them, the basis then for the second part of our uh, proposition that God will act on behalf of the church under attack of the enemy and the second uh, proposition that the enemies of the church may recognize that God acted on behalf of Israel should then be trusted. So in any case, remember that the message we're considering is this, that the church of Christ should not be afraid of the activities of her enemies because God will fight for her in such a way that her enemies may recognize it. So the Lord fought though for the early church in various ways. Protected the apostles, for example, from the enemies. Consider the fact that uh, we have that case of God sending an angel to free the apostles in jail 
in Acts chapter 5 verses 18 through 20. Acts chapter 5 verses 18 through 20. It reads, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought him out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. So here, God is fighting for the church. Now the Lord freed Paul and Silas from Philippian jail in such a way that the unbelievers recognized that the God they worshipped was the supreme God. Hence the salvation of the Philippian jailer. In any event, you should be confident that on a personal basis, that if you remain faithful to the Lord, He will fight your battles for you in such a way that you you will recognize Him doing so for you. And even those who hate you will admit that your God is supreme and true Similar to the promise of the Lord to those in Asiatic Church of Philadelphia, as we read in Revelation 3, verse 9. Revelation Revelation chapter 3, verse 9 reads, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So, fellow believers, here's the thing. If God is going to fight for the church, you should know he will fight for you. But the only thing is you have to be faithful to him and don't interfere. Leave the problem for him and let him work out whatever it is for you. When people come against you thinking that they're going to destroy you, you can trust that the Lord is going to rescue you in his way according to his plan. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to know to be able to trust and have confidence that you will fight our battles for us. This is our request in Christ's name.